pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for this delightful story of your deliverance that we have loved since we were little children, many of us. And we thank you that we serve a God who's powerful and who's mighty, even when we face great opposition. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the courage of conviction like these three young Hebrew men had. And Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased with uh, our comments and our message based on your word today. And that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us to achieve the success that we would also be used to the Lord to raise up young men and women like these Hebrew young men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever seen the book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? It's humorous. Not just theology, but but it's humorous. A book on the same theme, which is just a me called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Sunday School. My parents could have written that book right there. Um, Sunday School is more important than sports and recreation. Sunday School is more important than an education. The Sunday school is more important than an income. Learning of God and the things of God, there isn't anything that's more important. This is what my parents believed. I only missed Sunday school once growing up, literally once, when I had a communicable disease and stayed home. It felt really weird to be at home. And uh, that was it. One time, one one absence uh, from Sunday school. That's why the, I'm the fine young man that you see today, Clifton. <laughs> still knowing me, you should still go to Sunday school. My parents could have written this everything I need to know I learned in Sunday school book. Uh, when we have other options in front of us, besides the worship of the one true God, life has a way of quickly exposing who our God really is. Who are you really going to serve? Who are you really going to follow? Who are you really going to give your time to? Going to give your life to? Build your family around? What's it going to? What's it going to be really? Where you you find you're going to have you're going to have other options. Um, our, our family prioritized worship over sports, which was good because we really worked. <laughs> we weren't that good at sports anyway. But we prioritized worship over sports. The way we did it in our home was if the boys were on the all-star team. We, we would say, you, you can play baseball Monday through Saturday, and then we're going to worship God on Sunday. That's what we're going to do. Um, you have different ways of working that out. There should be a way that you put the worship of God as a higher priority than any other thing in the world. And that's what these young men did. They, they faced a pressure to serve a cluster of gods in Babylon They were allowed to add their God to him, but he couldn't be their only one and true God. And it comes to a head. Today's lesson is one we all should have learned in Sunday school. And if you went to a Sunday school school worth its salt, you've heard the story that was read today of the three young men and and the fiery furnace. Jim, thank you for your good work reading that. You remind me a little bit of my dad. Whenever he read this, when I was a boy, he had voices for all the characters, except the mysterious character in the fire doesn't speak. But he had voices, and he read it with great drama. 
And even today, I realize my parents wanted me to get the point of this story. This was important to them. They wanted me to be like one of these young men. And that kind of drove me as I thought about it in my preparation, my study, my blessed study of this. My, my dad was resolute about teaching me about the one true God of the Bible. And we were talking about that all the time. When we were working on the car, in between plays, when we were watching sports, when we were driving in town to make a hospital call, it was always game on to, te to teach me about the Lord. And my mom was so resolute about this that she had Bible clubs all the time. My earliest memories of going door to door, inviting the neighbor kids to what they called joy clubs or five-day clubs or good news clubs, and she was always telling Bible stories. This is one of the famous Bible stories among them that my mother wanted me to know. My dad wanted me to know this story and get the point of this story. My mom wanted me to understand this story. I suspect you're here because you have loved ones in your life that you want to be people of courage and conviction and followers of the one true God. And so it's great to revisit the story that all of us probably already know, and especially because we have a sense that there is a fiery trial that's coming. There are going to be pressures to compromise, and they're coming, and they're coming soon. And men are already in our lives all the time. And if our children and our grandchildren are going to come out on the other side with their faith unarmed, then they're going to need to be spiritually prepared. They're going to need to have people in their lives who feel that biblical convictions are more important than money, more important than status, more important than standing, more important than education, sports, pleasure, ease, everything. And so today, the message is seven things young people need. It's like the world's longest sermon title. Seven things young people need to face the coming fire with an even-if spirit. Did you write that down? No, of course you didn't. I always say the notes are online, but I was sitting in the front pew and I realized I didn't put the notes online. So now you have to listen to me. And later on, my, I have three son, grandsons they are getting baptized today in Grand Rapids at 2 o'clock. So I'm going to dart afterward and I won't be putting the, no, the notes online because grandsons are being baptized. But later on today, the notes will be available. These seven things, I want you to get them in your heart. I want to encourage you that already believe these things. I want to strengthen this. Seven things young people need to face the coming fire with an even-if spirit or a but-if-not spirit. And so depending on what translation you're using. But if not, the key of this passage, the turning point of this passage, is obviously in chapter 3, verse 18, where the young men say, we, you know, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to compromise. I, I want my children and my grandchildren to have a but-if-not spirit. Seven things people, young people need to face that. Number one, they need to understand convictions over preferences. They need to have convictions over, over preferences. Look again at verse 16. You just heard Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered, said to the king, verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We're not going to need you to play the music again. We already know what we are going to say. We already have, we have made up our mind a long time ago that we're not going to worship a false god. And if this be so, our God whom we serve 
is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, these uh, young men were young men of conviction. What's the definition of conviction over preference? We all have preferences, teams that we root for, things we have a hunch are true, stuff we like more than others, brands that are our favorite. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about convictions. And what's the definition of a con- conviction? I'll give you, give you the short version. A conviction is something that you believe is true and you're so convinced of it that you would die for it. Matter of fact, listen to this. The difference between a conviction and a preference has been defined by the U.S. Supreme Court. And you knew we were going to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court today, didn't you? You knew we were going to say something about that. The difference between a conviction and a preference, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, a preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. You can give your entire life in a full-time way to the service of a preference. You can give your entire material wealth in the name of that belief. You can also energetically proselytize others to your preference. You can also want to teach that preference to your children, but the Supreme Court may still rule that it is a preference and not a conviction. A preference is a strong belief, but a belief that you would be willing to change under the right circumstances, circumstances like peer pressure or family pressure or lawsuits or jail or the threat of death. Would you die for your preferences? No. But a conviction is a belief that you will not change even under the threat of death. And this is a great example of this that we have in the Sunday school lesson, the event that's described in Daniel in chapter 3. A conviction is not something that you discover, but a conviction is something that you purpose in your heart ahead of time. A conviction on the inside will always show up on the outside in a person's life. There's a story about a Presbyterian pastor whose name was Elijah Lovejoy. He's tripping along doing what pastors do, preaching, catechizing, baptizing, serving the ordinances of communion. And then one day there was a lynching in his town in Alton, Illinois, and he saw a young black man publicly executed. And he thought slavery should not be legal. And he, he began to think how he could, be a, he could be used of God to help in this heinous evil. And he began to use the power of his pen, and he began to write. Now, this, this aroused the ire of the locals, and they would regularly attack Elijah Lovejoy. He, he wrote something about that. He said, after observing the lynching, he said, if by compromise is meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more than I fear man. Crush me, if you will, but I will die in my post. And he did. So four days later, at the hand of a mob, Elijah Lovejoy was, was murdered. He was killed. And, and his ki- murderers were never brought to trial. Some of his defenders were brought to trial, but the murderers never... One of the assassins in the mob was later elected the mayor of Alton, Illinois. But there was also another young man from Alton area who would go on to the Illinois legislature, and he was impressed, and he was moved by Lovejoy's martyrdom. And you would recognize his name, Abraham Lincoln. 
The Bible says in Hebrews that young, young people will subdue kingdoms for God, but not young people that have no conviction. But young people with conviction, and old people too, that have conviction inspire like a fire, conviction in other people. And this is why conviction, having things that you believe so firmly that you are willing to die for them, is so important. This is why the passage, a conviction is from the Lord, a preference is from men. A conviction is based on the right handling and the right understanding of the Bible. A preference is little more than a personal opinion. A conviction is something God has required of you, but a preference is often something we're eager to demand of others or pressure others. A conviction is something that you are willing to suffer or die for. A preference is little more than a cherished tradition. A conviction inspires great selfless acts of service for God. Preferences tend to fuel petty bickering and division over minor issues. What you're going to see is how important it is for us to set aside preferences and be people of resolute biblical conviction and know the difference between the two. Not just be kind of quasi-religious bigots, uh, opinionated people, certain political persuasion, but people who believe the Bible is true and believe the God of the Bible and they will follow to the death the God of the Bible. A a conviction tends to unite people over time. Uh, A preference tends to divide and subdivide over time. A conviction is a timeless thing. A preference is cultural and temporary. A conviction is is primarily internal and and preferences are primarily external. A, A conviction causes your family and friends to respect you, admire you, sometimes even follow you. A preference for Forcing your preferences on people causes your family and friends to resent you and to resist you. A conviction is an opportunity to humble yourself under God. Forcing your preferences on other people is an exhibition of pride. A conviction strengthens churches. And, but preferences are often the basis of sectarian groups or even, even cults. They're different. So do you see what I'm saying? Convictions are important. And young people need to have biblical convictions, things they say, I know this is true, and I will lay down my life before I compromise these things. And that's why we have this story. And it it is interesting if you think about the importance of the law and the gospel. So this week there was the reversal in the Supreme Court, and the terrible law that allowed the murder of the unborn was reversed. And for this we thank God, because it is a reflection of the law of God that said, that, that teaches us that that murder is a sin. Taking an innocent life is a sin. There are other additional ethical questions that one can ask about medical procedures that are legitimate, but this is really not what we're talking about, is it? What we're talking about is the slaughter of tens of thousands of of human beings that have life that cannot defend themselves. Someone is all excited, the scientists all excited. We think we've seen life on Mars. And what they mean is there are a couple organisms that, you know, have a few cells working together, but they're really not sure that a, that a baby in the womb is not life. It's a messed up world that we're living in, and, and we need people of conviction. But so Christians are, we should be rightfully rejoicing that the law of our land has officially said this is, this is not something that is a protected right. We should, Christians, re, Christians should rejoice about that. But, but, it, but more than rejoicing about that, Christians should realize now more than any other time, it's important that we not only have convictions that life is life, 
but we have convictions that the gospel is the only hope of people who are in such darkness that they don't understand that, and they hate Christians. They think we're just a bigoted mob of people who are hateful and who are thoughtless and who don't care about other people, want to force our stuff on them. Here's what I see. I see lots and lots and lots of enthusiasm when your side wins a court case. I, I do, as a pastor, wish I saw the same enthusiasm for straight-up evangelism to lost people and sitting down and having gospel conversations with people who are far from God and their minds are completely in the dark and they don't understand why we believe the things that we believe. This would come from a person who not only has the conviction of the law that murder is murder, but he also has a powerful conviction that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Now, the Bible freights these with a different weight it's important that the lost people are taught the law of God, like murder is murder. It's also important that lost people are given the gospel. There's a glory in the law of God. The law of God reveals something of the godness of God, the beauty of God, the nature of God. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that the gospel reveals more of the glory of God. So it is important that we tell our neighbors who don't know the Lord, this is God's law. They should know this is murder, this is wrong, this is sin. But even more glory comes when we say, and Jesus is the way, the only way to keep a law. This is the good news. The law is not the good news. The law is good because it prepares us for the good news. But when Christians are happy with just having laws affected and they don't have the conviction of the gospel, then they're making a serious mistake in our time. They're missing an opportunity. So I know you know this, but I thought today is an important day that we say this as we are now in a time when it, it should dawn on a person's heart that they are in darkness and that they are enemies of God and that they hate his law and that they are a part of a culture of death and they're headed to eternal death themselves. Who's going to tell them how to have life? It's not just going to be our side won in the Supreme Court. It's got to be a bigger thing than that, a greater thing than that. And they have to have people that care about them and will sit down with them and help them with the, where, they've, where they've gotten themselves, just like where you found yourself in the heaviness of the mistakes and sins that you've committed and you needed somebody to help you untangle that. They're going to need you to help them untangle that with compassion and love, understanding, conversation, g- gifts, uh, a, 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 an identity like we're all broken people here. I too have been broken by sin in my family, just like you have. And this is how, this is how God can set us free so that the lights will go on and they will recover themselves from the snare of the devil and they'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can't do that just by changing a law, though we thank God when the laws of the land reflect the laws of God. You can only do that when you do what? When you are enlightened by the good news, the gospel, the greater glory of the gospel. And so this is a conviction that we ought to have, and I wanted to go down that little rabbit trail today for reasons that should be obvious. So the first thing that we want to train our young people to have, and we want them to have embedded, is the courage of convictions over preferences. Therefore, it's important that you, as an older Christian, aren't just a crabby old person that has attitudes about young people, you know, who are always on their phone or millennials or whatever, and you're just a crabby old religious bigot, right? You want to be a gracious Jesus follower who believes something 
but loves people, desperately loves people. And they confess their own sin because people need to see, young people need to see how to confess sin. They're going to need to look at an old person confessing sin to see what that looks like. That would mean you and I. Anyway, second thing, they need a few godly friends a few godly friends. We moved to a new town once, and one of our daughters was kind of lonely, and she didn't have very many friends, and we were homeschooling, which didn't help. And uh, so we, Lois and I, lay in bed like we do, and we prayed. And we said, Lord, you know our Holly needs some Christian friends. She's brokenhearted that she feels alone. Would you please send just a few Christian? I'll never forget this. A few days later, these two girls with dark hair skated by the front of our house. They just kind of skated by real slow, back and forth. They skated in front of our house with the inline skate. Two little, two little girls with dark hair about Holly's age started skating like this in front of our house. Holly's like, huh, who are those girls? I'm going to go out and meet them. She puts on her inline skates, but by the time she gets them on, they're gone. Well, they had like ships passing in the night for a while. These, these girls missed each other. But when they discovered each other, her friends, Courtney and Mariah, two girls in a neighborhood who were also uh, uh, Christian girls, became her bosom buddies, best, best friends. And she encouraged them in the Lord. They encouraged her in the Lord. And Lois and I knew that we knew that God had sent Courtney and Mariah into Holly's life to be their friends. And her parents had said the same thing. They needed a friend. Holly's been a friend to them. You don't have to be in the majority. You don't have to be in the popular. You're going to need a few friends. You, you don't, you, you don't, you generally do not, you know, people say stand alone. You should be willing to stand alone, but you, but that's not the model. The model in the Bible is get a few godly friends and have a prayer meeting. That's what they did. Have a few godly friends and encourage one another. Find a few people who really know and who love God who have convictions. Maybe even try to find somebody who's a little further down the road, maybe somebody who needs to come along and, and, and have a few godly friends. You see where we got this, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're always mentioned together. They're in the prayer meeting with Daniel. Have a few godly friends. It's really important. I didn't used to think this was important because, you know, Americans are kind of loners. We had a canoe trip one time, and we're having a canoe trip with the men of the church at First Baptist in Fremont years ago, and all the boys came along. My boys were really little, and we got in the canoes, and I'm kind of like, I, I kind of want to have a little time with our family, and I, I wanted to befriend the guys, but I kind of want to keep a little bit of an arm's length, too, because I want to have some time with my boys. And I remember that our son Daniel was in the middle. He's just a little tiny boy, sweet little boy, maybe four or five years old. And Chuck was in the front. He was like approaching teen and a little bit stronger. And we jumped on the river early in the morning, and it was in the spring, and it was running a little fast and cold. And it was all fun until it wasn't anymore, you know. And then we got the, the canoe trapped under a log. And when that happened, I was extremely cold. I'm not a great, I know by looking at me, you would think I was, but I'm not some kind of great manly outdoorsman. I'm, I'm kind of a guy that likes bookstores and whatnot. And uh, I'm like under a log in the cold. And I'm like, this isn't fun at all. This isn't like the picture I had in mind where I'm kind of going, and it was like, ah cold, dangerous, we're all going to die. Uh, I, I'm upside down, in, and, I'm, and, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, it got the boys back in the canoe, and I was worried about them. And then the rest of the day was, do not tip over in the cold water and die. The whole day was like, all I was thinking was, if I can just get this thing behind me, and we don't die, the boys don't die, I will be happy, you know, but I didn't want to tell anybody, so I'm whistling and acting like everything's okay, but in my heart of hearts, I was afraid, and I was a little afraid for the boys, and it was a little dangerous, and we flipped again, and then now I'm kind of like 
survival of the fittest thing, and I'm trying to get the boys back. One particular time we flipped, and I lost Danny altogether. I couldn't see him anywhere. I panicked. Chuck had floated on down and got out, and I looked, and I just couldn't find Danny anywhere. And finally, I realized he had surfaced under the upside-down canoe. And we got him, and I, and, and I got him out on the side then, and that was a little corner. Some of the other guys in the church had gathered around there, and they were watching me, and, and I, we were laughing and kind of cutting up. It was kind of humorous. We, we don't happen to root for the University of Michigan, just so you know. And my son had a, a sh- shirt on. It was a little cold. He, he took it off, and a buddy came over with a Michigan shirt and gave it to him. He goes, I'm good. Like, <laughs> I'd rather die. Cold. I thought that was kind of cute. He's like shivering, you know, but he's not going to wear the Michigan shirt. And uh, anyway, it was kind of cute. The other guys were like, here, we'll help you with it. Here, we'll help you with that. Why don't we switch canoes? Let's put him in the front. We'll we'll put him in the middle. We're going to get this thing done. And one of the guys walks over and he stands right next to me. He just reaches out. And we're just kind of laughing a little bit. And then he reaches around and he, he puts his arm around me and he just hugs me. And I thought, he gets it. I'm scared. And right then it hit me, I'm glad I'm not alone here. i got men who care about me and my boys. Together we're safer here. Listen, folks, that's what we're talking about. This world is not going to be our friend. We're going to be nice. We're going to try to get along. But it doesn't matter how much we compromise. They're always going to ask for more. We're going to need a few friends with, that have convictions. Our kids are going to need a handful of other kids that believe something they're willing to die for. And we can't compromise on this. That's why we have this story. Need a few friends. <laughs> it's point number two. Um, third, we need courage that comes from God awareness. You know, they said, we're not afraid to answer you in this. Like, are you kidding? This megalomaniac, this angry guy heating up the fire, and they're like, we're not afraid? There's only one reason they weren't afraid. because they, they, their main thing wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, and their main focus wasn't the furnace. What was their main focus? God was their focus, and that's the answer, right? Courage, you know, and we have an epidemic of anxiety. We have an epidemic of fear. We have an epidemic of depression among young people. They need to see how big and how good God is so that they have courage comes, comes in and anxiety goes out when their focus is on the power of the living God, a courage that comes from God awareness. And understand, teach our young people, they're all going to go through the fire for different reasons. David went through the fire. It was a corrective and a punishment for his sin. Job went through the fire as a proof that God exists. Paul went through the fire to produce humility, 1 Corinthians 12. Peter went through the fire for fellowship with the Lord and service of the Lord. Paul went through the fire for humility. I think I said that. John went through the fire and God gave him prophetic insight. Now the scriptures teach us that the believer, the fire is always for our prophet, for this is Hebrews 12, 10, they disciplined us for a short time, our fathers, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so we should say to the Lord, I don't want to go through the fire, but if it's good for me, you're going to have to help me, Lord. And eventually you're going to go through a fire. You guys, can you say amen to that? You know this. Number four, they need to have joy and fulfillment that's rooted in God. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar said about these young, they trusted God. It was obvious they trusted God. Their trust, faith, confidence was not in the Babylonian system or the wealth of the Babylonian system or the training of the Babylonian system or popularity in the Babylonian system. It was they were always serving God. 
And this young people need that they need to say there is joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, but only the highest joy and the highest fulfillment and the highest satisfaction. It's in God. It's in following God. There's a literal joy in following God if you have nothing and know nothing else. Number five, there is, uh, oh, and, and, and by the way, um, the lesson here for them was not obey so that you won't have to suffer, right? It's like even if, but if, but if not. The lesson was obey God not so you won't suffer, but obey him even if you suffer and even if you die. And then number five, real freedom. They need to understand that real freedom comes from binding yourself to God. And there's a, there's a, there's a picture of that, and there's a huge picture there. They're bound hand and foot. They're tied all up. They're thrown into the fire. And when Nebuchadnezzar sees them, he's, he's like, they're walking unbound. The, the scriptures are really plain about how they were bound and really plain a literary feature here, they are not bound anymore. Not a hair on them was hurt. We tend to think, and young people tend to think, and didn't you feel this when you were young? You had a tendency to think, I need my freedom. I can't have anybody tell me what to do, and especially God. He's really going to be overbearing. I can't have that. It's like, but you're all going to serve somebody, you all right? And so the, this, our young people need to understand the way to freedom is bind yourself to God. Bind yourself to his law. Bind yourself to what he demands, and he will, will unbound you, unbind you from everything else. Number six, they, had a, they have to be, young people have to be taught to trust in the power of of God. They said, our God is able. They needed an experience of God's power. They need to see the power of the living God. Our young people do. Need to see examples of his power. Need to have experiences of God's power in their life. Real experiences like the, the three Hebrews had seen Daniel already in this. And now they were exhibit A, B and C. And now every kid that ever went to Sunday school knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were examples of the power of God. If somebody said to you, Grandpa, what example do you have about God's power in your life? What would you tell them? Grandma, tell me about God's power in your life. We should long for that, hunger for that, seek that, follow God. Number seven, craving the presence of God. And this is the final one, and, and this is the, the heart of it. Let me ask you a quick question. Remember last week we had uh, a great question to ask is, where is Jesus in the text? <laughs> Sometimes you see him. Frequently you see him, right? Last year, last week, remember the message? It was the statue and the stone comes out from the mountain and hits the statue at his feet. And then this, this stone becomes a kingdom that, that's the whole earth. My question to you is, where was Jesus in that? And, and if, you were, if you're paying attention or if you studied this before, you know, Jesus is the, is the king in the kingdom. Jesus is the king. Okay, and, and the question is, where are you in that? You're in the stone. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're in the stone, in the kingdom. This is the good thing. That's where you are. Okay, now in this text, we have the Hebrew young men and the fiery furnace, and then is Jesus in this anywhere? Well, it is curious that there's a fourth person in the fire, a mysterious being in the fire, like the Son of God, like an angel. What is this? Is it a pre-incarnate 
That's my theory. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the fire with these young men of conviction. It could have been an angel, but I'm going with Christophany, if you're asking. But nonetheless, it was God displaying his power and his presence with them. Now, this is what we ought to want more than anything, any other thing for our young people, that our young people would believe the power of God, experience the power of God, and they would crave the presence of God. And if you want to experience the power of God and you want to experience the presence of God, be a person of conviction until it gets you in trouble and then you'll meet him. You'll need him. You'll desperately need him. And so as the scriptures say, Matthew 28, 20, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'll always be with you. And when you go into college, he'll be there. When you pass through the waters. This is a, a prophecy 150 years before Daniel. In Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the river, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. And the prophecy is fulfilled. In Hebrews 11, you know this, it says, who through faith conquered, Hebrews 11, 33 and 34, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong through weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. They subdued kingdoms. Who were these people? They were people who passed through the fire. People don't subdue kingdoms without convictions. So now, where, where do they get these things that they need? They're going to need people who are examples of these things. That's where you come in. And this is why I, I approach the text this way, because that's how it's written. Da Daniel's elderly, and he's reminding them of these stories. This only can be because there's another generation coming. And Daniel says, just like I followed God, now you follow God. And I know some of you are discouraged, and right now it doesn't look very good. My sister prayed for my, uh, my oldest nephew for years and years and years and years while he went his own way and did not follow God. You ought to see his Facebook feed in the last six weeks, though. Everything is posting a Bible verse or a YouTube video of a praise song or, or an outline from a message. All those prayers, all those years when my nephew Jimmy was so far from God, Jimmy is walking with God today. He has a trailer. He's living in the south, and he has a mobile home and needed a culvert out by the road, and he, he prayed uh, that God would help him with that. And he went to the hardware, and he's maybe God would give him a bargain on a culvert pipe or whatever. And his, and, and his wife called him and said to him, come home, the county is here, and they're putting the culvert in. He takes a picture and says, God answered my prayer. This is a boy who had nothing to do with God for many years, but he had a praying and faithful mom. When I was a kid in school, my parents always said, don't date an unbeliever. They would say, don't date an unbeliever. And I was always nervous that some beautiful unbeliever was going to you know, attack me. Never did happen. Um, <laughs> that never, never happened. And, uh, and, and, and I remember even trying to pick up college and think, I don't know if I trust myself to go to college where a lot of lost girls are because I would be kind of weak, you know, and I might be vulnerable. And I remember thinking that. And I was, in college, I was in high school one day and a girl walked up next to me and she's pretty and she smelled. I remember she smelled real pretty. And, and, uh, and I, I was like, my heart started to beat kind of fast. I'll spare you a lot of the detail here. But, you know, my heart started to beat kind of fast. And she was being really friendly to me. And she had pretty long black hair and dark eyes. And 
she kind of stood real close to me, closer than you would normally stand. And we had a concert that night, and she says, are you coming to the concert? And she's kind of like, I don't have a ride. And I'm like, oh, I'll pick you up, kind of like real innocent. Uh, but it wasn't like just giving a girl a ride. It's a girl that smelled nice and made my heart go fast, who I hadn't vetted yet if she knew Jesus, right? So I'm immediately feeling a little bit compromised. Wouldn't probably be anything wrong with picking up a girl, taking her to the concert, but I knew my heart. And I knew that I was flirting with danger. But I didn't tell anybody. That was another sign. You know, I didn't tell mom and dad. That night, I just left alone and left alone. Mom's like, you're leaving early. My mom and dad kept tabs on me pretty good. Uh, they're like, you're leaving early. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't tell them I was going to go pick up that girl. Felt like guilty. Picked her up <laughs> and drove her to the thing. And we kind of sat there together. And then I just was the weight of guilt on me because of my heart was considered kind of like a girlfriend, you know. And uh, so on the way home, I decided to take her home. I think, man, I just felt so bad. I witnessed to her, like over-witnessed to her all the way home. She's like, what in the world? You know, like, my Billy Graham here. And, and then I apologized. I had no business picking you up. Like, I remember her last words were something like, I didn't ask you to marry me. I just asked a ride to school. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm not used to flirting with pagans like you. You know, wasn't really, wasn't really very good at it. When I think of that, that, you know, if I had to do over again, it would have been cool to take a friend, pick her up, be a friend, witness to her, you know. Maybe she would come to know the Lord, I don't know. But, but I do think there, there was this thing my parents had trained. You know, you're going to go to school, they're going to teach you this. That's not right. This is what's true. You've got to be willing to suffer. I've been to Sunday school. We need to go to Sunday school. The reason Daniel wrote down these stories is so the next generation be faithful to God and trust him in hostile territory, and trust him when there's angry opposition. And my friends, we are going to face angry opposition. These children that they're going to face, our grandsons, our granddaughters, the children, they're going to need models, examples, people in their lives who are consistent examples of an even-if spirit. God help us as we approach the fiery trials ahead of us, which is to try us, to demonstrate an even-if spirit Spurgeon said it this way, Look, you sirs, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we today are not faithful to God and to His Word. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and our children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and to his word. God help us to be a people with an even-if spirit.